Welcome to the Unboxing Your Packaging podcast, where we pop packaging out of the box thanks to the shared experience of inspiring businesses and experts. I am Colleen Regou from Look for Loops. My passion is to optimize the use of resources and designing out waste. This show aims to help you redesign, reuse, and recover your packaging. Do you want to be smarter than single-use disposables? What impacts called big organizations canteens expect if they switch to reusables? With my guest, Rich Grousset from Redish, we could have talked about it for days. This episode is an accelerated overview of how a take-back system for reusable food containers can reshape consumer behavior at scale. We covered the cyclic deliver collect clean business model of Redish, including their optimization rate, their local choices, their materials properties, and the value of their impactful scope tree metrics. You will also discover a lot of behind the scenes strategies, like their motivational communication, their sustainable commitment at every level of their logistic and some of their partnerships. And if you are interested in reuse, I invite you to listen to episodes six, eight, nine, 10, and 12 with guests from other parts of the world using various materials in different kinds of contexts. And of course, to episode 17, where I shared three key benefits of reusable packaging. But for now, let's start with Rich from Redish. Hi, Rich. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Welcome to the Unboxing Your Packaging podcast. So let's start with a very straight to the point question. What is the business model of Redish? And what are you doing? And maybe a little bit about the why as well. I let you share what you want on this. Yes, there's a lot I could talk about there. So I'll, I'll keep it simple. Redish is a pretty straightforward business model. We are a reusable food service packaging as a service company. To put that even uh, simpler without the jargon, that means we're like a linen or uniform service. We provide clean products for large food service operations to use to serve their food. Typically, large corporate cafeterias, office buildings, K through 12 schools, the food service operators serve their food, people eat the food, the products go back into a bin, we collect the used products at the end of the day, and we bring them back to our facility and wash them. We repeat that over and over again. So it, the concept is very straightforward. The why is to not only reduce the massive amount of waste from food service products, but also it's a climate issue. We're eliminating the need to manufacture single-use products used in these operations. And it's the manufacturing that is a, a very significant part of the footprint of those single-use products. Oh, yeah. We will talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But uh, just to be sure that our audience is understanding what you mean is like you are responsible of containers not about the food inside and you clean them and take care of the return correct yeah to get to get very specific right so 
We focus on reusable food service products like to-go containers. You know, most of our products are the, the clamshell style that you'd see in restaurants, that restaurants use for takeout and delivery. We just have a few different shapes and sizes of clamshells. We also, we also offer a cup and, you know, a round bowl style, but they're all the same material. We deliver them. And, you know, from that point after delivery, they can be used just like a single use product had been used, right? The food service operations put the food in uh, and serve it to people. We're not involved at all at that part. And so it, from that standpoint, it should be very easy for them, right? To make this, the change from the single use to us because it's a similar product. It's just more durable. And from the, from the food service operator standpoint, it's very similar. Okay, that's great. And do you have like a... Just an example of what does that mean in terms of numbers of single-use food container that's not used? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of a great example. I think the the largest of our clients to date had done as many as a thousand products in a in a day, and so that's that's a large number, right? And and as we're adding clients, we're currently pushing, you know, the, our max capacity in our current dishwashing setup. So, you know, we're talking about, we're, we're currently washing several thousand per day and we have a new machine that is waiting to be, it's almost set up and we're very excited about it because it'll make th several thousand a day look very easy and allow us to get up in the tens of thousands per day. So yeah, but one, one of our clients, for example, can easily be 500 to a thousand, thousand products per day. So from our, the reason we went after that market is actually for, is actually that, is that one, one client site can result in many, many single use products avoided just from one operation, you know, we're, and we're reaching as our clients come back to the office, several of them will, will grow into the thousands per day. And we'll be reached. So we'll be reaching thousands of people per day at even one site to to get them in the habit of reusing. Now, this is a very new thing for many of them, even though it's it's not a new concept to the world, right? It has happened in the past, but we've gotten very accustomed to eating out of products we can then just throw in the trash or the recycling or compost bin. And now it's back to, oh, I can, I can take this to my desk and also not throw it out. So we're, we're training thousands and thousands of people every day to that behavior. And then hopefully that will expand, you know, into the other types of food service Uh, companies out there, you know, the restaurants and, and the other markets. Yeah, that's interesting because you speak about big numbers and uh, I've seen that indeed you are like targeting big canteen of big companies was it to make uh, all the road and clean a bunch of containers at the same time. And I was wondering, do you have a minimum to be your client? And I have another question as well, because I have worked in the reuse industry as well. And what I've seen is also that sometimes it's possible to work with industrial zones where multiple smaller actors came together to use the service. Is it happening to you or is it part of the minimum or maximum rate you are looking for? Is it not yet one of your reality of, uh, in your business? The short answer is we're flexible. We're still small and we're growing, right? We aim for organizations that are using 500 or more products per day. And primarily it's environmental, but it's also economic. We are driving to sites, right? To pick up and deliver products. And so it's not difficult to understand that you want to be picking up as many products as possible <laughs> at each stop. And so to stop at a place for 100 or 200 products per day or, or less 
you know, it's just very expensive. It's a very expensive trip. So while we we try to target folks using 500 or more up, right, we're, we're currently flexible. And part of the reason for our flexibility is that some of our clients that before COVID had 5,000 people per day in their office still have fewer than 1,000 people in the office, right? Yeah. And so we're, you know, and if not all those people are eating in the cafeteria every day, it means they're not really back to the thousands and thousands of products per day that they they were before. And, and you know, who's going to want to say no, right? Do we want to <laughs> say no, we're not going to, we're not going to help you now. We realize you're going to be back in eight months. Let's have a conversation that no, like, of course, we want to help them start eliminating single use now, as long as our truck route works, right? As long as it, you know, maybe if it's only a hundred products and it's way in the North of the Bronx or something like, sorry, yes, we, we may not be able to go that far. Right. But Mm -hmm. so it really, I guess the short answer is it's, we're flexible and it depends on the situation, but ideally it would be in that, you know, 500 plus products per day range. It's interesting where it's you. Oh yeah. (laughs) Let let me, let me answer the other part of your question. I forgot (laughs) about it. And so to talk about several smaller organizations kind of getting together to take advantage of the service, we explicitly like directly that way, not necessarily, but for example, there are several office parks without giving away names, like in New York City, where multiple there are multiple tenants in the buildings or set of buildings that may not have their own huge operations, right? We are starting to see more than one tenant in a building become interested. And then we've also heard from some of the building owners or property managers, you know, that they would be interested in bringing us in to serve the entire building, even, even if that involves multiple clients. So how will that evolve over time? Your guess is as good as mine. You know, if we're going to see other types of groups say, well, we're all small, but there's 40 of us. Can you help us? You know what I mean? We'll have the conversation. <laughs> okay, great. Interesting. I see how we can expand here. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, you mentioned an interesting thing about if it's like far in the Bronx and so on. So for you, local is important for obvious reasons. So how does it work in terms of partnership also with your manufacturer? Is it like something that you value that is really something that is made in the U.S.? What is your vision around that? Yeah, so the products we use are made in the U.S. And that was one of the key criteria for selecting them. Our CEO spent several months evaluating numerous products on more than 20 different variables. So the products we landed on were a polypropylene product made in Oregon. And, you know, specifically the made in the USA part, it's not just patriotism, right? It's it's also not having to ship it overseas. That's an additional footprint. But it also has to do with a lot of transparency into sustainability and working conditions and other things. And, and those are much easier to keep tabs on when it's within the U.S. And, and it's easy to go in person and check it out. I'm not insinuating that all overseas manufacturers have problems like human rights and working conditions <laughs> and all and environmental issues. You know, it's just that it is much more difficult. And, and I've talked to a lot of people who said the same thing. It's much more difficult to know for sure without going there yourself and depending on the country, the regulations and everything gets very complicated. So in addition to the environmental benefit of just having it to travel less to get to us, it's also just a very much, we know where it's made. We know it's the codes and regulations we're familiar with that company is operating within. And we could go and see it in person without having to book an international flight, which is nice. (laughs) So I think, I think that's most, I think I covered most of it there. 
Okay, thank you. Oh, one added benefit due to the most recent supply chain issues we're all very familiar with is that we don't have to wait for cargo ships to come from overseas, which turns out to be a big deal more so in this past year than it has in many previous years, right? But hopefully for everyone's sake, that will not be a major issue, right? For much longer, hopefully the the shipping and, and overseas trade will improve again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's super interesting that you mentioned that. It's a big deal, right? It's like you are proposing a service and, and then you are waiting for the product in, in itself and then you are stuck, right? It's, it's something to consider, definitely. Right. Yeah. And just to add to that, because some listeners might find it interesting, it's it's not like we can put in an order for tens of thousands of products, even though they're made in the US. It's not like we can put that order in and have them in two weeks. That's that's not the case for most people when you're ordering at that scale and and it's a product that's not, you know, we're not ordering Coca-Cola paper cups, right? Those are probably in hundreds of warehouses all over the country. You could probably get them next day, right? So we're ordering something that is less commonly used and a lot of them, you know, in our orders. So we're we're already waiting more than most people would expect. And so, but to add onto that, the, the international wait would be, you know, we're trying to plan clients. They're not necessarily signed on yet, or they're just signing on. When will their launch date be? At what point do we have to order ahead so that if they do sign on, we have the products they need in advance if we don't already. So there's a lot of game already to be played within our current time frame of when the lead time is when we get the products to add on the mystery of the international time frame would be much more difficult for us. Yeah, and what I really like in what you just said is that actually in reuse, it's also important to have not too much. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. It has to be reused enough, right? It's like, it's definitely the aim. <laughs> Otherwise, you have a, a huge stock that is not used and then the value of it is uh, lost, kind of. So it's it's really related to the business model in itself to reduce uh, negative impact and to make positive ones, right? So I really like that you emphasize that. No, that's a really good observation. And I'm going to start using that when I talk to other people. (laughs) Yeah, no, the trick is right. It's It's having enough inventory. It's also way too expensive to have inventory sitting there in addition to it not doing any environmental good if it's sitting there. So yeah, that is a lot of the trick. Right. It's having enough money to order enough <laughs> before the clients come on and then not ordering so much that, you know, you've gone broke and also they're sitting there for six months before they get used. So, yeah, there's a lot of inventory management and procurement that the people who do that for a living would understand much better than I would. But, yeah, it's a fascinating game for sure. Yeah, and it makes me think about something I have seen on your website as like a comparison graph in terms of the use you shared on your impact page you show like 10 use until 1000 use and you are <laughs> about 1000 use and it's why it's for us it's also so much in terms of impact and so on so i, I wanted to know because of these uses i really want to dig a little bit more in data track system because you just explain okay this is about inventory this is about return rates and so on and so let's speak a little bit about what you are sharing in terms of tracking system because you are tracking your containers and you have numbers to share and so maybe i let you uh, explain a little bit what you want to share and then i will jump on other question about that oh boy yeah where to begin so we our model is that we we deliver products 
and there's no upfront investment, right, to our clients. And we charge for the collection and washing, right? So when we get them back, we scan them and that's the tally for what we collected from that client. And they get a charge to per use fee, right? That's the bit, our business model is charging per use, just like a single use product. You know, if you bought a case of something, it would cost you four cents per or 30 cents per clamshell or whatever. We charge per use of a product. And so when we scan the product, it goes up into our dashboard that our clients can view. And it, it shows almost in real time, soon in real time, but it's a database. And so sometimes it takes a while before batches update, but it basically real time, like how many we collected and washed for them every day. And it automatically generates environmental metrics based on that as well. And so we had a life cycle analysis performed for us by resource recycling systems back in January of last year. It compared us to a typical polypropylene single-use product, mm -hmm. uh, comparable size to one of our products. And we use that to generate, like every time you use us instead of that, you're saving this much in greenhouse gas emissions, this much in water use and diverting this much in waste, you know, by mass. And so our clients can go right in the site and see based on how many we've collected from them, what those metrics are over time. And what I'm working on, what I'm in the, the midst of right now is comparing our products to other products that are more likely used by our clients, such as the fiber-based compostables and, and the other products. So the, the surprising thing I learned, and maybe everyone knows this now, but within the last few years is that uh, a lot of the fiber-based single-use products actually have a larger greenhouse gas emission footprint from their manufacturing process than, for example, a polypropylene single-use product. That it was counterintuitive to me, but when I dug into <laughs> the life cycle studies, it made sense because of the process to take a sugar cane or a wood-based fiber, you know, the cellulose material to convert that into a pulp or fiber that can then be pressed into a container. That whole process is very water intense and energy intense. And we are very, very efficient at making plastic, unfortunately. Fortunately and unfortunately, we have nailed that. The process from extracting petroleum to turning it into a single-use polypropylene to-go container is, is not clean or perfect, but it actually uses less energy typically than making some of these fiber-based products. So right now, our comparison is based on us to a polypropylene. When we switch it to, if a client is switching to us from a sugarcane bagasse or something else, it's actually going to give them more favorable metrics. So right now we're actually underestimating the benefits by comparing only to a plastic product. Again, it, it blew my mind and it, it just, you know, I suspected that compostable wasn't the answer to begin with. And then of course, all the other things surfaced and I learned about the life cycle and, and it became very clear, but so yeah, that's generally, that's the information we track and share. And to go back to your question about like how many uses and everything, we track each individual container. And so over time, our database is going to be able to show us the average actual practical lifespan of each of our of these products but to put that in perspective if if our products are rated at 1000 washes by ecolab the dishwashing company right and you see other product providers and other companies like ours saying the same thing and it and it's true these things are really sturdy and they'll last a long time you know but what's the practical how much do people beat on these things what happens to them when they get dropped in a bin 300 times we're very interested in finding out what the practical lifespan is of these things but before one of our products is used 300 times, we have to collect it, wash it, and re-deliver it 300 times. And it's not typically used the next day. 
So you're talking about every other day for a product. So that's like 600 days to get to 300 mm. uses, right? So we started our first operation in our dishwashing facility with the scanning and everything, April of 2021. So it's been more than 365 days, but <laughs> we have a ways to go. And plus we started with a larger inventory, right? Because we started with enough. And so we're trying to get through all of it. So a lot of our containers are still on the couple of uses each. <laughs> and I'm excited when we get enough clients and we do enough washing where all of our products are get, starting to use tens and 20, you know, maybe. And then we'll be able to have some very interesting data to share out to the world, I think, about the actual lifespan of some of these things. At least I'm fascinated with that, but I'm sort of a reuse dork, so... Oh, yeah. I bet that our audience will be fascinated as well. And I am as well. <laughs> and I really um, appreciate your transparency about that because it helps also to know this behind the scene thing, right? It's not that it doesn't make the impact from day one, <laughs> day two. It's happening because it's a system change as mm -hmm. well, right? And the math says our product beats the fiber-based products after only a couple of uses, I think. Mm. And Just Salad just came out with a similar thing. I don't know if you saw that, but they released a study done for them by, I can't remember the name of the nonprofit now, but it's a group based out of, I think, either Rochester or Syracuse. And they worked with Just Salad and, and came out with a study. And, and the Just Salad reusable bowl beats the fiber-based bowls after two uses. So oh. so that means the work I've been doing is, hasn't, isn't way off, right? That's good. It confirms a little bit that my math is close. But yeah, so I think we're replacing all these things. And then over time, each of these containers that we own will have beaten single use too, right? And that's really the point we want to get to. It's like, we want every piece of inventory we have to have replaced multiple single use products. And then everything after that is like environmental nirvana we just keep going and going i have another question because you mentioned the fiber materials and so on i have in mind some other fibers material because of some of our previous interview like uh, based on seaweed or mycelium so it's even another subject but it's changed a little bit the math i think but uh, so yep. i was wondering do you need to audit first the consumption of the company because of that for example, let's say that they were using single-use plastic containers, but not fibers. So are you <laughs> changing a little bit your metrics because of that? Or is it like global metrics? Or do you want to adapt it? How, how does it work? Yeah, so like I said, right now we're using the one lifecycle study we had commissioned for us specifically compared to the single-use plastic product, right? And that is what we're using for everyone. And is it good enough? Yes, depending on who you talk to, right? I think it's good enough because they're not getting any other metric, right? Usually they're not getting a metric on their single use provider at all, you know? So to have something credible, I think it's a credible number, but it's certainly not the same as if they're switching from a fiber or a, a different, like a PLA or a different type of plastic. And so, yes, the answer is yes, we want to grow our comparisons so that our clients can select what they had used before and compare that to us. But what's even more interesting is some of them don't even want the comparison. They just want to know what is their footprint using us. They don't want me to take away what they had been using, whatever that product was, because they want something that they can report in their scope three, you know, ESG reporting. And that doesn't ask for a relative, right? That's just like, what's the footprint of this? And if they can get that from a single use provider, then they should use it. If they can get it from us, they're going to use that. And one of our advantages is that we provide a credible number. And 
And that will make it easier for us, actually, because then we don't have to try to understand the exact footprint and the different metrics for each. There are a lot of different single-use products out there, right? So it's it's <laughs> a little bit ambitious to think we can have a great number for each one, but groups like SumD, the single-use material diversion, I'm going to get that wrong, but they have the understanding packaging scorecard, right? Which is a huge help now because they're starting to quantify and consolidate all that data of all these different materials. And so that's going to be helpful to everyone. So you can say, it is important to say this, what is Redish doing? What is their footprint, right? Is there another product out there with a better footprint, right? Because it's not inconceivable. I would say reuse is higher on the waste management hierarchy. I think reuse should be the ultimate goal regardless, right? But we should always be wary of saying black and white, something is the answer. And as new materials come in the market and, and are explored, like everyone should be absolutely looking at them and, and saying, well, does this change the, the game or do, do we need to have our reusables made out of a different material, right? That's a whole different discussion. And we're, it's not like we have a strong preference for petroleum-based plastics. We would prefer not to have a petroleum-based plastic, right? Let's make a similarly performing product out of something else. I guess what I'm getting at is our goal is to provide what our clients need. And some of them will want that comparison, especially when they're considering switching. And so I have worked rather manually in some cases to look at their complete range of product that they're using now. Mm -hmm. And then which products of ours they would use to replace those and then coming up with more accurate metrics. It's just manually done right now. It's not done through our automated dashboard system and eventually it will be. Oh, it's interesting. So you, you are able to, to adapt a little bit if it needs it. Yeah, so it's interesting. And uh, you mentioned the scope tree and it's also include like corporate social responsibility reporting, just also for people who are not familiar with ESG. So it means environmental, sustainable and governments. So that's a system of reaching goals in terms of impact. And just to jump a little bit on that, I... I have read in my past, in my career, a lot of sustainable reports because in Europe, it was already an obligation when you were like reaching a certain amount of uh, employees. And I have seen good things, <laughs> but also a lot of greenwashing and like fuzzy information and so on. And so what I really like with your service is that you bring some numbers. This is practical solution. It's not like somewhere <laughs> building castles in the sky. And so, so I really appreciate that. And I was wondering if because of what you are doing, do you feel that there is more and more alignment with the core business of your clients in terms of, for example, do you see that some of them are like in the process of obtaining a certification like B Corp uh, or embracing a more global sustainable shift and you are part of it? Do you still feel that you are like a side solution to green brands or do you feel that it's like coming more and more with deeper commitment, I will say? What is your feeling about that? Yeah, that's a... It's a wonderful question. I mean, because I, you know, part of the question is the motivation, you know, behind them wanting to do what we believe is the right thing, right? And it's really challenging to say whether or not they all want to do it for purely the right reasons. But part of me is like, if we get them doing it, then it doesn't matter that much, right? Because I think everyone would agree if even if 
well, maybe everyone wouldn't agree, but I'm like, <laughs> this is a hypo. I'm not going to actually, I'm not going to make fun of any big evil corporations out there. We don't work with any, but that's only because they're not in our geography at the moment, right? Certainly there are many corporations that have many different reputations and, you know, would we not work with one of them? Because I don't know, uh, let's call out big tobacco, right? Like, would we not work for a big tobacco office to switch their single use to, to reusables? Because everything else they do might be questionable as far as greenwashing or health, you know, endangerment, like, you know, without putting my foot in my mouth uh, too much, I think maybe <laughs> I already did, but yeah, I mean, we would want to, we would want to switch to reuse, even if they want to just put it up on their corporate sustainability webpage or report and say, Hey, look at us. We're awesome. You know, I don't think most of us are fooled to believe that their entire company mm. is, is great. Or, or green just because they serve their employees in a reusable thing. But, you know, the right thing for the planet is for us to serve their employees in a reusable thing. So motivations aside, I, I kind of went down a weird path with that. But mm. I think the simpler and less awkward answer to that question is we are seeing companies say, we've been looking for something like this for a while. You just, it hasn't been available right? There haven't been reuse services around for decades or large dishwashing facilities to outsource that need for that long or ever in some places, right? So some of them have been waiting a while to be able to, to do something. Other ones are seeing the pressure now from, you know, they don't want to be left behind from the ESG rating, you know, games or drop too far in the rankings and they're looking for competitive edge. And so they're looking for stuff like us now because of that pressure and other ones are just like, wow, this is the right thing to do. We got to do it. So it's really a mix. And I haven't had any interactions that's led me to see the, I guess, the skeptical side, right? Where it's like doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I haven't really seen that. But again, it's just really hard. It's really hard to know, right? When when you get into a giant corporation and there's, you know, 20 different decision makers, <laughs> it's really hard to know when what's happening behind the scenes. But the champions, you know, the most of the time we're talking to the champions and they convince the right people that this is the right thing. And everyone seems to love it when they get started. So hopefully everyone else will see that and jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, that's interesting what you just mentioned, because it's about human using containers. Also, even if they are part of this or this industry, as like, as you said at the beginning, it's also a way to let them experience another way to consume. Mm -hmm. And so I, I felt it's interesting uh, how you phrase it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot, you know, we do align a lot with overall, not just waste reduction goals or climate change goals, right? It's local, right? But like local is a great story to talk about. And it's sustainable, right? Because you were traveling less to, you know, you're not delivering single use products from overseas to be used once. So there's a benefit there, but there's also a purely business element to that, which is resiliency in the supply chain. Local and reusable means you're not relying on what a lot of people were having trouble getting compostable products because of the supply chains issues over the last year. And so from a pure business standpoint, that makes sense in that element too. But, you know, we're talking also, we're a women-owned business in, in Brooklyn creating jobs, right? So there are all these things generally, most of these companies also care about in addition to, to strictly reducing waste and, and reducing scope three emissions. But we are seeing with all the scope three emissions attention in the last year with 
potential new rules, requirements, and voluntary and non-voluntary. I think you'll we're seeing more folks trying to understand where they can get the easy data because if you have a thousand suppliers, it's not easy to get scope three data <laughs> from all of them. So we try to make at least ours easy for them. Yeah. Oh yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Definitely. Scope yeah. tree is uh, a big deal and it's important. It's really part of the value chain. So I before jumping a little bit more in some uh, question about material and, and uh, partnerships, I want to ask you a question and it's part of the routine of the podcast so each guest is asking to another guest a burning question and i have chosen for you the question from megan olson from ecovative in episode 20 and her question is super short and I maybe it will a bit summarize what you just said make you think about other things but the question is what does sustainability mean to you oh and it's a really short question because it's really hard yeah <laughs> and she was mentioning oh I, I am curious to know that because even if you work in this area we formulate uh, it in another way because of the industry we work in or even our past experience and so on. So I was like, okay, let's jump on this question before making links <laughs> to the following ones. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, different ways to react to that question. There's sort of the emotional, you know, our personal life experience and and how, like, what sustainable means in that way. And, and also just like professionally and academically, right? I personally, like what it means to me more technically speaking, is we don't extract or use more than what the planet provides naturally to us. You know, this is a definition that is out there in the world, right? It's like ensuring the the well-being of future generations indefinitely, right? To me, it's that humans don't diminish our planet's ability to support us and other life and, and, and indefinitely, you know? Our time frame should be indefinite, right? Because otherwise it's an injustice to the future of human race, not just, you know, there are enough injustices today. We're only going to make it worse in the future. So that's, that's what it sort of means to me, but just emotionally wise, like, I think my sustainability journey was triggered by seeing a gum wrapper in the middle of the Adirondack State Park in New York, in the middle of nowhere. And I, I just couldn't believe that someone would take for granted our natural world so much just to, to carelessly drop something. And Later, as I matured and understood empathy, I realized they may not have done it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but as a youngster, you know, I was like, I'm sure it was intentional. And, and, but yeah, so there's that emotional side to me too, of like, we need to take responsibility. Like sustainability is also to me about responsibility. And that's important to me that we collectively do that as well as individually. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I hope that it will inspire the audience as well and uh, think about what it means for them and yeah. how does it practically translate in their own life as well. Yeah. And to put it out there for everyone, we all know it's not easy as an individual to make a huge change, right? And there's a lot of debate about individual actions and, and do they matter? And I've struggled with this a lot. And so even tonight, I'll probably think of eight different ways I could have answered that question. But the short answer is like every action does matter. And if not only for the tiny, tiny little 
impact it can have, but also to show the other, it's a modeling of other people around that it matters, everything we do, you know, and, and but like that for me, it's systems change to have the real impact. We all need to work together to change the systems that produce the waste. And that's not just trash waste, but like energy waste, every, every wasteful thing we do as human beings. Hey. Thank you. <laughs> like, uh, I feel completely aligned. <laughs> so <laughs> you're, I am already convinced. <laughs> I, I wanted just, it's not related, but I just don't want to forget this question. So that's why I'm coming back to it. We already spoke a little bit about the fact that your container is high quality BPA free polypropylene. It's not stainless steel or glass and so on. And I guess there is many properties that motivates that choice. And you already mentioned that your founder was analyzing <laughs> a lot of options in what it exists. And I just want you to give the opportunity to share with us what are the advantages of what you have chosen and what are the pit points that you would like to solve one day. Yeah. One of the huge advantages of the polypropylene product is that if it chips, scratches, breaks, for some reason absorbs a stain uh, that cannot come out. And I am surprised that more things, these things are built very well. I would think that more things would stain them, but they are not stained very frequently or odors as well. I haven't smelled one that has smelled <laughs> like it's kept the odor of even the curry or the turmeric. Our dishwashing operating folks could tell you all sorts of things about what's harder to get out and, and whatever. But, you know, one of the important things is that after, if, if any of that stuff happens, we take it out and we ship it back to our manufacturer and it gets ground down and made into other polypropylene products, right? So the end of life of our product was an important consideration. And that's one of the big advantages, you know, that I'm not quite as familiar with the stainless steel end of life situation. Uh, it's recyclable. I do know that. Other things though may not be as recyclable at the end of their lives. And especially if they have multiple materials. So having a single material and having an existing pathway to close the loop on it after it's been used, hopefully hundreds and hundreds of times was a really important feature. And then the rest are just like, does it hold up, right? Does it hold up? Does it scratch easily? What's it look like after you know, X number of uses, there's considering, there's a lot of debates about, does it need to be microwavable? Does it not? That's up in the air, right? For many years in reusable, I always thought it should be microwavable, but I think people are fine with the stainless steel with that regard, right? Like they don't have to throw that in the microwave, I think, but we'll see, you know, I think there's a lot more consumer learning to be, and maybe it'll be multiple, right? Like maybe they're eventually when there's more products available on the market for reuse, you know, cons consumers will have the choice. Like, do they want a microwavable one or do they want the stainless steel one? And, but yeah, I think the end of life was very important. I don't have the list in front of me of all the other variables, but I, I think that is a key one. And what would I like to solve in the future about it? I mean, not having to extract petroleum from the ground to make that polymer would be beautiful. So if we could get something that lasted similarly well and had all those characteristics made from a non-petroleum-based substance, I mean, that would be incredible. These things, they don't dent. They don't really break that often. They don't show much wear and tear. So they're really, it's plastics, you know, are the worst and most wonderful thing that we created as human beings, right? So 
for now, it just works very well. And I guess the other side of it too is economics. You know, the economics of purchasing a polypropylene versus stainless steel, which is probably also changing now as more more folks are buying reusable stainless steel products. Like those are getting less expensive, but the polypropylene was, and I believe still is a more attractive, you know, you're buying tens of thousands of products, like every couple of dollars matters quite a bit. So I believe this before, and I think our founder believes this as well. Like we want to solve for reuse and that's our goal. You know, mm. that's the big hurdle. If we're not using this material in a year, so we, that's great. That's fine. We hope the market for reusable products will just blossom and we'll have so many better options out there, but this works for now. And the important thing is we're getting people to reuse them. So down the road, we won't have to struggle with that. We'll just struggle with optimizing the, the product. So it has zero footprint or even a negative footprint, right? So <laughs> <laughs> like a negative meaning a positive, right? So. Oh, okay. So when you mentioned microwave, it's indeed, it's like sometimes when I'm chatting with some friends, like they are like, if I have to microwave it, probably I will be at home or in an office where I have a plate and I can still microwave it, but still it's easier to just put it right away in the microwave. So it's like, <laughs> it depends on the mindset, I think, as well. And same thing for freezer safe. It's like, I think mm -hmm. your, your container are freezer safe. It is, safe, yes. But it's also the comparison of who is really <laughs> making that step of putting in the freezer the food they didn't eat from their canteen. It's like, it's a whole thing, right? Yeah. It's interesting to have it. And at the same time, is it something that you really had to have? Maybe exactly not, right. like uh, it's depend of the use, right? And right. Um, in terms of impact, you mentioned on your website that it's lightweight and stackable. So maybe for your partner, if they listen to this uh, podcast, <laughs> they might be interested yeah. to know that. Right, exactly. So That's another great point, right? Because we have to transport these. They have to be efficiently stackable to be transported and not take up a huge amount of space. So lightweight and stackability, those are really important characteristics if you're doing high volumes as a reuse service provider. So yeah, that's another important area to optimize. One thing people, you know, we kind of learned and, and I'll share some insider information here. One thing we learned is that when the food service folks, you know, they're serving the food in the cafeteria, Often with single-use products, they would have to hold in two hands or serve in one hand because they couldn't put one down and then stack another single-use on top because they would just flatten each other, right? Oh, yeah. And so they were really kind of excited. They're happier with ours because they're rigid, right? They're more rigid. So they could literally put one down and put another one on top, put the food in that, put another one on top, put the food in that, and they wouldn't all crumble on each other. And so they were actually able to serve more, they said, they said they were able to serve meals more quickly, right? Than having to deal with these less sturdy single-use, like the fiber products at least, or some of the flimsier plastic ones. So yeah, that was a surprise to us. We hadn't really, it's hard to think of everything, right? It's hard to think of everything. And that's, I mean, part of the reason for using a material that can be microwaved and free, free, frozen and everything, right? It's like, you just don't know what people are going to do with it, right? And, and I think as reuse programs all over the country grow, we're going to start learning a lot more about what what is essential and what isn't, you know, mm -hmm. what are people actually doing with these things? What do they need to be doing? And then the products can become more targeted and, and optimized on fewer traits that if we get rid of some that aren't really as important that we I learn am. about. Yeah, it's about convenience, right? Like and the use, definitely. And just to stay on material a little bit, you are NSF certified. So 
how was and still is that process for you? And would you recommend any initiative to go through that one as well? It's like for those who want to launch something somewhere else in the world. Yeah. What is the experience of being certified in this area? Also, you are in food, right? So it's important. Right. And the good news is for a company that wants to do reuse like us is that it's really the product manufacturer and designer that have to get the certification and not us. So they have to go through this process. And for those of you not familiar with the NSF certification, right? The NSF, it's not National Science Foundation. I don't remember exactly what it means, but it is a, they're an organization that certifies many, many different things. And Uh, a lot of them they do for food service and food preparation and its processes, its products, it's all sorts of things. And specifically with the containers is what they're looking for, things like scratching, staining, but also that the food contact surfaces are easily washed and don't have any nooks and crannies where bacteria can hide and grow. And, you know, so they're looking for all those things in order to, for it to be an NSF certified product. And so as a reusable service that does a lot of washing, it's very important to us that everything is hygienic in the first place. You know, our washing facility has to be crystal clear, clean, safe, and no one in, in the reusable business wants to risk anything, right? Oh yeah. I don't, I don't even want to say it, but knock on wood, right? Like if there's a confirmed illness from like a reusable product you know, it's going to be an uproar and it could set back the reusable movement, right? And I think everyone in the reusable movement is aware of that, right? And so we're all, we're all exceeding standards that are already out there for restaurant dishwashing and, and everything else, right? It is incredibly important, not just for our own bottom line, but for everyone. And so the NSF standard, I think, just makes the choice easier if yeah. it is NSF certified to know like, okay, well, this group has signed off on the fact that this should be easier for us to wash you know, it's less risky, to, it's less risk of contamination, stuff growing in it, right? So I would always recommend people look for that, right? Some companies and people will only work with that, like will only work with NSF certified. Doesn't mean everything is NSF certified, but we certainly look for that and think it's very important. Okay, so it completely serves your purpose of reuse. Yeah, exactly, right. I think the difference is that most polypropylene products are like FDA, like it's almost like FDA is kind of like the lower level, you know, it's like if it's made out of polypropylene, that's food grade, FDA is cool with it, right? Mm. But that, but I'm not familiar enough with FDA. To, I don't think they worry as much about the washability, right? And so the NSF is like that next level up of like, okay, right, you can serve food on this, it's safe for food, but also it's going to be safe to wash and use yeah. again. It will raise the quality of using that product on, on long term, I will say. Right. And, and I'm sure there's other people more familiar with the NSF certification that are, could be cringing because I've missed some things, but <laughs> that's my general understanding of it. <laughs> okay, thank you. And maybe that's called me a guest. Yeah, yeah, maybe if, yeah, people can write comments in or, yeah, have a guest from NSF and talk about that. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and also because you mentioned a lot of washing, I have read also that you use uh, high temperature, but you are also using a soap, specific soap that is for environmental impact as well. So I was like, Redish is really thinking about a lot of things and it really shows that you are driven by the impact you want to do. And, and the number of things you can start thinking about when you get into this is amazing. It never ends. You know, you're talking about what the dishwashing folks wear on their hands and 
hair nets and what do you use as paper towels in your facility or what rags do you use you know there's and every one of those things can be optimized right but it, it also takes a lot of time and that's my job now so i'm i'm <laughs> i'm getting to as much as possible right but you know we also measure our own waste and in our facility right so that we can aim for a 90% or better diversion rate and also so we can tell our clients listen we're composting right like x amount of food waste that was captured from your your employees oh, yeah. food containers mm -hmm. that otherwise probably was going in the trash you know so yeah you can go down many many different rabbit holes and there's it certainly there's enough to look at to oh, yeah. so that i have <laughs> we, a job <laughs> yeah 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 and uh, i think we already cover a lot and it's yeah. uh, one episode will <laughs> be too short right exactly <laughs> to, to speak about all these things but you still you make me think about another thing when you moderate <laughs> the um, switching to reuse products in large food service operation panel you gave us the privilege to see your facility and i enjoyed this quick visit and i have seen a third kind of packaging for your pallets could you explain that and what you already have explored and what is working so far for you because we spoke about <laughs> the machine the soap oh, the yeah. containers but you mentioned that there is of course a distribution and the take back process I have seen that you have several options, or at least a new one that you are trying. And I, I wanted to know a little bit, what is your experience so far with that? And would you advise to try this kind of shelf, I will say, to transport your container? Are you talking about the kind of large laundry tower type thing? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm like, I could talk about all sorts of things, like where <laughs> when our products come in from the manufacturer and when we send them out and our reusable totes. But no, the, yeah, the, the laundry tower is, a, is an interesting one. And that is mainly, it's not for us transporting the products to our client sites. We learned to make it easier for them on their loading docks to keep all of the used products in one place and separate from all the other waste streams. To get into some more fascinating details, when you are at these large companies and large food service operations, the loading dock situations vary drastically. Some own their own building and they have all the access to their loading dock and they can do whatever they want. And there's tons of room and they can separate things here, there, whatever. Others have part of their building and the property or building owner doesn't want them to do anything on the loading dock, you know, and then there's a lot of in between, right? So Through a lot of learning at these sites, we learned that these sort of laundry, we started with kind of laundry baskets, you know, they're kind of just rolling bins <laughs> so that when they brought bags of reusables down, they could just throw them in those laundry bins and it would kind of keep it visually separate, you know, from everything else and easy for us to roll then on the truck after that. And then we went to taller towers because they accommodate double the number of products or more. So it's vertical using vertical space instead of more horizontal space in their loading dock, right? So we're just trying to make it as easy as possible for clients to keep it in a spot out of the way, the used products while they're waiting for us to come and get them. And that's where our you know, wonderful ops team and everyone else kind of came across these as a solution because they're kind of slender, but tall. They also fit in elevators if they need to roll them in and out and, and things like that. So, and then we can just roll them right onto our truck and give them a clean one. So that's been so far, knock on wood, it's been a, it's been an improvement right for our clients and we're just always like you said it's just like looking at a million things trying to figure out you know what makes a better sustainable solution what makes it easier for our clients what makes it easier for us like yeah it's sort of like you know in one way we're a, a distributor of 
products, right? So a lot of people do that. They show up and they drop off products and they leave. And then in the other way, we're waste management, picking up a waste stream from the loading dock. So we have to kind of learn how to do both very well. So, mm. but yeah, so far those, those tall laundry towers are, are working well. <laughs> cool. And, and you just mentioned that you have also the system with uh, your manufacturer? Well, yeah. So I, I, I guess I was going to use this as an example of how we face the same issues as, as everyone else out there, right? The large companies and small. Our manufacturer sends us reusable containers in, in cardboard boxes, right? And in plastic film inside of those cardboard boxes, right? So one of our challenges, just like everyone else, it's like, how do you negotiate with your supplier to... I don't know, ship in reusables instead of a single use cardboard box, you know, at least cardboard box is recyclable, but I could go down another, a whole nother rabbit hole of how I studied the impact of cardboard boxes. Right. But, and then we had the plastic film right inside of those. And what we, we actually did find that this great local person who another story aside, but he, he takes the plastic bags from our, because they're clean, right. All they've mm -hmm. had is clean, reusable products in them. We save them and we take them all in large batches to this person. It's called Any Bag is his company. And they take the plastic bags and they shred them and turn them into basically a plastic fiber. And he makes reusable tote bags out of them, like these really beautiful tote bags. So I guess a pitch for his company. So that's like our best way to hopefully, I'm like, are we upcycling? I hate to say that without thinking about it first, because I hate getting it wrong. But, you know, it's giving that plastic bag another life, right? Mm. And so... That's a current solution. The better solution would be no plastic bag at all. But right, like these are the same problems a large company deals with, right? Too. It's like with every office supply or product they buy. So we're not immune from that either. We're just understanding the challenges very well. I really liked it. You shared all this. Thank you so much. <laughs> And we are slowly coming to the end of the interview, but I still have some question that I, I want like well as you can say. see I could talk about this all day so <laughs> you let me know yeah. when you're ready to stop <laughs> maybe I have to split our interview in two yeah. <laughs> so you communicate on your website three key to success I would like to expand a bit on those so you have like clear communication at launch a convenient returned bin location and internal advocate. So you already mentioned for the last one that you have champions, convenient return bin location is like, I guess you have specific big bins with British written on this because if people put that in another bin, it won't be returnable. So I guess that's a super important part of your business that people actually put the reusable container in the right bin so you can take it back and clean it and so on. And clear communication, I have in mind your media kit as well. And yeah, how you manage communication with your clients and with the end consumer or both. So yeah, that's a lot of to say uh, here. Yeah. Do you have another 30 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the number one obvious one is convenient return, right? There are some people that will go out of their way to find the right place to return something, but that is not, I would say, typical or average human behavior, right? That's just not how we're built. I'm trying to come to accept that. I still haven't quite gotten there, but, you know, really people, we've built systems in this world where people are accustomed to doing things and it's very easy, right? It's very easy to throw something in the trash. And so... We encourage our clients to put as many as is feasible, like return bins, right? And usually 
it's not that crazy, right? It's just where are their current trash and recycling bins? And there should be a redish reuse bin right next to those, right? Mm -hmm. That's like kind of the minimum, you know? <laughs> we don't necessarily have to provide our clients with those bins. One thing we learned early on is that a lot of clients like their bins to look, you know, like the aesthetic of their building. And so for in order for us to match every client site, we would have to have hundreds or thousands of <laughs> options. So we do have a couple options that we think are nice if our clients would choose to use ours, but a lot of them either have excess in storage and then they brand them differently. We give them branding in our media kit that you mentioned that they can use to wrap or do whatever they would like to their own bins to fit in aesthetically with their, the surroundings. But it has to be clear, like just as a recycling has to be clearly different than landfill and both have to be clearly different than compost. It has to be super clear. And even then people will still do the wrong thing. We know that, right? But without trying and making it as clearly different as possible, then you're really at a disadvantage. So those are sort of like, it's as convenient as possible and as clear as possible. And you have, people have to know where the bins are. So if early on, that might mean more signage around the office with arrows that they, that you don't necessarily need with trash, but eventually those can go away as the habits are built. So yeah, I think convenience of the return bin is huge and, and makes a lot of sense. Communicating to our clients is of course important, but it's usually the main thing, like you said, is communicating to the people using the product. And that messaging coming from our clients is usually better well-received than from a third party. That's a whole, well, there's theory. All right, I'll skip that though. But other people out there might be, get upset. What, what if it comes from you? It might, I'm like, you might be right actually. But anyway, without going down that train of thought, we try to get, and we provide our employee, we provide our clients with a whole suite of signage and email templates and information that they can use prior to launch and at launch of the program so that people are familiar what's going to be happening, like why it's happening, what they need to do, that it's very simple. It's like just really, really for employees using our containers, all they have to do is not throw it in the trash, just throw it in the group. It should be straightforward. But if you prepare people, it's much better than them just showing up and having it happen, right? So we provide a whole bunch of communication. Some of it includes environmental importance of doing it. Some of it's just like, not that it's just this is what's happening there's a variety of consumer behavior change methods out there right that we try to use incorporate into our signs but and then we encourage our clients to use that stuff right and then we also have a media kit for after they've been up and running for about a month or so to help them this is how you've done right this is how to continue the momentum and all those sort of things so we do provide a lot of content and messaging for them to use. And we do provide also impact reports. They can see it on our dashboard that if they logged into, they could look at, but we do send them a one pager at the end of the month to say, this is what happened this month. And this is the environmental benefits and, and all that sort of thing. So that if they're on top of their game, share that along to their stakeholders, whether that's internal or external to help in that regard. So we're, you know, we're still learning. Every company's different. And when you're working with thousands and thousands of people, we're still learning on what's the most effective messaging and, and communication channels to use and, and everything else. Yeah. Oh yeah, I hear you. So let's say I am one of your clients. What kind of extra effort would I need to expect to manage my canteen with your reusables? Would you wish maybe also that your future clients were prepared for something in particular before contacting you or like as an expert in the transition from 
single-use food service projects to reusable alternatives and not only for Swedish because you have a career before, right? What will be your best advice for those who want to start to reuse? Oh, best advice for, <laughs> for, yeah, honestly, I think my best advice is really keep it simple and then experiment and iterate and learn and do it, you know, try things and learn from them, right? And really, really try to understand the motivations and drivers of each stakeholder involved in whatever type of reuse program you're doing, right? Because I've seen some really brilliant ideas out there and, and I don't have the memory or the time to, to talk about some of them, but you know, when you spend time thinking about what motivates people and why they're doing what they're doing now, and then also like who's the client, who's paying, who should pay, really, really spending time understanding all those things and the changes that need to occur, and then planning on how to motivate and encourage people to get past whatever behavioral change is required, and then trying some new things to make it happen and not being don't ever, I would say my best advice is don't ever fall in love with like one way of doing things, right? Mm -hmm. Let it be driven by what works and what you learn rather than your first thought. And, and hopefully your first thought and idea is perfect, but that's not by, been my experience <laughs> for myself and for most people. <laughs> oh, that's great. And actually I, I can recommend to listen to the episode 15 and 18 and 19 about motivation and shifting behavior. It's like really about that. I think I will listen to that one. And there, <laughs> yeah, there's lots of great books. I was like, yeah, there's plenty to learn out there on the subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I am learning every day by even watching people, how they mm -hmm. react and like, oh my goodness, they are not the same as, mm -hmm. <laughs> as me. I have to, you know, integrate that so much. It's like uh, so different. Yep. Even between two different client sites, the questions we get at one are, are totally different than the questions we get at the other, you know? Uh -huh. And so mm -hmm. we learn every time we start a new program. Yeah, hopefully you can send them this episode and they will have a lot of answers already. <laughs> so that's that's a good way. Yeah, if my my ideal client and my ideal set employer employees users would be ones who would spend an hour listening to this podcast <laughs> and understanding all the reasons why this is important. But yeah, I think we understand that we're a small percentage of the population. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but still, you have something to send. Yes. Um, just in case. So what are you planning for the next five years for Redish? And maybe do you have like a call to action related to that for our audience? And do you envision like a scale by city or like? Yeah, I mean, the quick version of that is yes, scale by city, right? So we are trying to perfect and learn as much as we can in New York. And we've already have a short list of a couple other places. Fortunately, the great thing about New York City is that you're working with a client in New York City, most of them have offices elsewhere. And so really it just depends on where is the next cluster of businesses that would like to use us. And then we'll go set up operations there as well. But yeah, the goal is to be in one other major city by the end of 2022 and then several others next year. We're only trying to build the infrastructure for reuse across the country. No big deal. But yeah, <laughs> no, expanding, it takes a lot. And there's the investment and financial side and the clients. And fortunate, and there were some smarts, but like we hit this at the right time and, and people are really interested, right? If it was happening much faster, we might be too crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of happening at the right speed. And I think we're going to be really buttoned up in, in all our processes and everything 
in the next couple of months when our new machine is online and mm-hmm. we learn how to really do this at like 10 times the rate. And, and then we can transfer all that learning to the next city. That's five years. Who knows? You know, <laughs> next year, I mean, mm. we want to be at millions and millions of products per year at a minimum, right? Like yeah. hopefully tens of, so there's no cap, right? No. I think we just want to replace single use at the fastest possible rate that we can. <laughs> And still targeting office canteens, because I have seen that, for example, you are at some events like Pollinator Picnic in New York. And I was like, okay, what is the rate of return? Uh, do they have like more losses or is it a very interesting business model as well because of the events to touch other kind of people? Yeah, the- I think, you know, Pollinator Picnic came about because I've been talking with Madison Square Park Conservancy for several years, and they've always been very interested in, in sustainability and their domain of the Madison Square Park neighborhood. And we've always been int- like trying to figure out how we could work together on a reuse project. So it turns out that our stars finally aligned and at Redish and we could provide containers and it was more of an experiment, right? And I, I guess there, it's, I can't really divulge the results yet because I haven't looked at them. It literally was Saturday. It was just two days ago, three days ago. What day is it? But yeah, so I have to dig into a bit more, but we provided, just so the audience knows, we provided reusable containers to five restaurants within a few blocks of the park. And those restaurants made special meals, pollinator-themed meals, to go with the theme of the pollinator picnic. And people could pre-order or go to those restaurants to get the meals in our reusable containers. Mm-hmm. The idea, they'd get them, they'd come to the pollinator picnic, they'd hang out, and then return them in a return bin at the park. The volume wasn't as great as we hope. The restaurants didn't sell that many meals. And this is a whole nother episode, but it turns out, you know, it was like 90 plus degrees. And I think part of it, like the lawn wasn't open because it was being resodded. So we were in a sort of a different spot than I think the conservancy had wanted us to be in. And so it was very small, but we had tabled there as well. And we had so many great conversations with folks that were asking us what we were about and what's reuse and, and what we do. So, you know, it's one of these experiments that yes, next time we and the Conservancy will probably do a bunch of different things, but it was a really good positive experience, right? So hopefully next time it's instead of tens of people using reusable containers, it's hundreds or thousands, right? At this event. So, but that's what I talk about when I talk about experimenting, right? And it's like restaurants really not our target market, but when you have a cool partner and they want to do something, you know, give it a shot, try to reduce some waste and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Rich, I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. I just have to, <laughs> to yes. save the time for the audience. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> They can play at one and a quarter or one and a half speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, but that's really fascinating all you do. And also the way you explain it, it's really, really interesting. So um, we are at the end of the episode. And for those we want to go deeper into reuse, logistic maybe, or circularity, sustainability in general, what book, article, or video has inspired you so far and that you would like to share or something in general as well? Yeah, I thought about this question because you warned me you were going to ask it. And there are so many things and other folks have recommended to me so many great things, but I'm just going to recommend... This book I picked up called How to Save the World, How to Make Changing the World the Greatest Game We've Ever Played. This is a more recent one for me. The reason I love it is it just has some really practical things about how to communicate for changing behavior, like getting people to reuse and do other things. It's kind of like a short and sweet. 
but you can just flip back to the right section and be like, oh, I got to try this thing and this thing and this mm. thing. And it's practical. So it may not be the mind blowing philosophical sustainability solution type book, but it, it like helped me, it helped me practically even with how to craft signs and messages for Redish. So it's by Katie Patrick and it's called How to Save the World. Okay, perfect. I will put that in the show notes for sure. And now I would like you to address a burning question to an ex gets related to packaging, something that you would like to have an answer or you are curious about. And I will choose to your question might fit best. Yeah, I was worried you're going to ask me to do that as well. I think my question for the next person will be sort of what are the key trade-offs and the key traits that they would seek in a reusable packaging product. It could be for food, it could be for transport, it could be anything, you know, but just what are the, the key traits that they would look for? And then what are the trade-offs that they come up against and how do they decide which of those trade-offs to make? Okay, thank you. That's an <laughs> interesting question for sure. And how can the audience find out more about you and about British? Get in touch. Sure. So you can find us on the web at www.redish.com. People can feel free to email me. Honestly, it's r-g-r-o-u-s-s-e-t at redish.com. Find me on LinkedIn. I honestly, you can call me up. I will talk about this stuff all day, every day. So yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions anyone has. So please, please feel free to reach out. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> it's like, I really, really appreciate our conversation. That's really great. Oh, thank you. And thanks for uh, tolerating my really long and uh, winding answers. I love talking about this. I am pushing for it. So I'm <laughs> responsible <laughs> for it as well. <laughs> so it's, we are good. We are a good team here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so th thank you so much. I hope to see you here around. The, uh... Yeah, same here. I got, I got have to get to Vancouver to meet you all and the great reuse that's going on there. I hope so. All right. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if it's the case, be sure to subscribe where you get your podcasts and leave us a five stars review to help for its visibility. You also probably have at least two or three friends or colleagues to share this episode with. Of course, feel free to get in touch by the lookforloops.com website or drop me a line on Colin Regu LinkedIn profile. Last but not least, be sure to check the show notes with the links and resources. Until next time.